All right, just like Pastor Steve said, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Hopefully your Bible just automatically falls open to 1 Corinthians now when you, when you open it up. I want to challenge or attempt to challenge your, you to think or at least challenge some of your thinking this week so that maybe I'll give you some areas to maybe ponder some things. So I hope that I can challenge your thinking in these three areas this morning. Uh, One, I want to challenge your thinking about what love is. Secondly, I want to challenge your thinking about what heaven and eternity will be like. And then the third area is to challenge your thinking about what a small group is really all about. So hopefully over the course of what we talk about here for the next half hour or so, um, I'll give you some things that maybe will just cause you to be thinking about that this week as we conclude this series in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And we're going to deal this morning with just one verse, the very last verse in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. It's also your memory verse for this week. If you've been memorizing the verse each week that we've given you, this is it for this week. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. If you haven't pulled out your message notes, you may want to do that from your celebration folder as well. It's got these passages as well as some places for you to write some things if you'd care to do so. But in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says this. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul says when you boil the Christian life down to just three things. Here's what they are. It's faith. Hope and love. And of those three, love is the most important. It's the greatest. So let's make sure we know what these three things are. And especially, let's make sure we're clear about love because it's the one that trumps the other two, right? So let's jump into it. First, let's talk about faith. Here's what I think is kind of a working definition of faith. It's just this. Faith is to believe that something is true even without any tangible proof. It's believing in something, believing that something's true even though there isn't something tangible there to prove it. I think we get some help from this in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1, it says this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. Even though you can't see it, even though there's no tangible proof, it's what we hope for, it's what we have confidence in. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to illustrate this. Verse 2, he says, This is what the ancients were commended for. It was by faith that we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And it's by faith that Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. And by faith, he was commended uh, as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. And it's by faith that Enoch was taken from this life So that he did not experience death, he could not be found because God had taken him away. 
For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You see, you can't touch, see, smell, or taste God, so you have to believe that he's real in order to put your trust in him. And then you act on that by obeying him, just like Abel did. When he obeyed God by bringing the sacrifice that God commanded rather than what Abel did or what Cain did and just doing his own thing. See, just like Enoch did when he followed God with such passion that God decided just to take him into heaven without even dying. And it's just like we do. When we make choices to do the things that God tells us to do. That's faith. It's believing that something is real so that we act in obedience to it. Guy falls off the side of a cliff, drops about 20 feet down and manages to grab hold of a branch. He looks down, it's forever down there. Surely he's going to die. He's holding to that branch, he looks up, he can't get back, there's nothing else around. And so he hollers, help! Is there anybody up there? Here's a voice. Voice says, it's me, it's God. Let go of the branch. Looks down. Looks up and he says, is anybody else up there? (laughs) See, it would take faith to let go of the branch. To act on that. Because the evidence seemed to point that letting go of the branch wasn't a good thing. Take faith. You'd have to believe to do so. Faith is pretty important, isn't it? But Paul says not only is there faith, there's hope. Now, hope isn't just wishful thinking, like I hope I get a GPS for my birthday. No, really, I hope I get a GPS for my birthday. It's, the stores are open. It's not too late. No, biblical faith is more than that. Biblical faith is having absolute confidence in what you believe. That's what hope is. Romans chapter 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, what we were just talking about, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope is the confidence that comes from enduring. It's holding on to God's promises, despite suffering, despite difficulties, despite hardships. You might think of it this way. We have faith to believe, and we have hope to endure. Faith is pretty important, isn't it? Hope is pretty important, isn't it? But Paul says there's a third one. 
And that's love. In fact, it trumps even the importance of faith and hope. So what does love mean? Well, we've spent the last three weekends defining it, so I won't try to go back through all of that. But how about we just go with this? Love is sacrificing for the benefit of others. Guy proposes to his girlfriend, darling, I love you more than anything in the world. I'm not wealthy. I'm not rich. I don't have a yacht or a Rolls Royce like Jimmy Brown. But I love you with all my heart. Will you marry me? She says back to him, you know, I love you with all my heart. But tell me more about Jimmy Brown. You know, we get it all wrong in our culture when it comes to love a lot of times, don't we? But love is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's something that you do for somebody else. And we've spent the last three weeks daring you to... Practice love on each other. Because you see, love isn't just something between you and your spouse. It isn't just something that you have for your kids or for your parents or for your boyfriend or girlfriend. Love is something that you do and you do it on everybody. And certainly Jesus is our example about this, isn't he? The verse that was your memory verse for last week, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus sacrificed for us, didn't he? We ought to be doing the same thing for the people around us, sacrificing ourselves for those around us, loving them. But the question I've been thinking about these last couple of weeks is I've been thinking about this verse and praying and thinking over this verse is, well, why is it then that love is the most important? How come it's the greatest Of the three. I mean, they all seem pretty significant, don't they? Faith, hope, love. Why is it that that love is the greatest of the three? And here's what I think. I think it's because love is the only one that we will never stop needing to practice. You see, there's going to come a day... When we will no longer need faith. If you know Jesus, one day we will exist in Jesus' presence. So believing will be easy, won't it? We won't need faith anymore. I mean, he's right there. Our faith will be actualized. We won't need faith anymore. And there will come a day also when Jesus will wipe away every tear. When he will make all things right, and we won't need hope any longer either. We won't need to hold on to God's promises anymore. They're going to be fulfilled right there for us. We won't need hope any longer. But there will 
never come a day when we will stop needing to love. And that's why Paul said earlier in this chapter, love never ends. You see, even after we reach heaven, we'll need to love. Even after Jesus has put all things under his feet, we'll still need to love. After the great white throne judgment of God, all of us who have our names written in the Lamb's book of life will live forever with Jesus and with each other and we will still need to practice love. It never ends. We'll still need to love Jesus, won't we? Which raises an issue. And that's this. If you don't love Jesus now, what makes you think you'll enjoy loving him in heaven? I mean, right? We're going to worship Jesus forever. I mean, worship is just expressing our love to Jesus. Isn't that what worship is? Which again raises the issue. If you don't enjoy worshiping Jesus now, what makes you think you're going to enjoy doing it forever? We're going to keep loving. We're going to need to practice love for Jesus. But not only that, not only will we love Jesus, we'll need to show love for each other for all of eternity. Which again raises the issue. If you're an unloving, self-consumed person now, why do you think you're going to be any better in heaven? Really? See, we don't, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I don't. I, you know, heaven is like that's the better alternative of the two, right? That's about as far as I go with it. But heaven's a real place. Eternity's a real dimension that we will, if you know Jesus, be in forever. And so in a very real sense, this life is practice for all of eternity. Now you get the idea of practice, don't you? I mean, think sports. You learn, you master skills in practice that you want to deliver on in the game, right? And so in this life, we need to learn, we need to master the skills that we will use for all of eternity. And at the top of that list will be being able to love well. I mean, could it be? Think with me, think with me. Could it be? that people will have the potential of getting on your nerves in eternity. I think maybe. Could it be that it will take discipline to put others ahead of yourself, even in the eternal? I think so. We're going to need to be able to love well. 
And so if that's true, if this life is practice learning the skills that we will use for all eternity, I think the question is this then, well, where is it in this life that's the best place to learn how to love well? And I think the answer to that is in relationships. You don't learn to love by yourself. You learn to love with other people in relationships, in marriage, in family, and in small groups. I know it stuns you that I would bring that up. But seriously, think with me for just a few minutes. Because I think this is another important reason why you need to be in a small group. That as I've said many times, a small group is not simply a place where you go to learn something. Though I hope you learn something in your small group. But I think more importantly, a small group is a place where you go to learn how to be in community. That you learn how to love other people well. That you learn how to be loved by other people. And that's something you have to learn. Something you have to practice. I was thinking this past week of small groups that I've been a part of over the years. Because really for the last 15, 16 years, I've been in small groups and different small groups over that time period. And and I kind of got to thinking, you know, as I look back, pretty much generally, this is always the case. In almost every small group that I've been in, there's generally somebody that rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> really. Pretty much generally, in every small group I am, there, there's somebody that I didn't just naturally connect with. There's generally been somebody that I had to work at loving. There's been somebody that got on my nerves. Or their kids got on my nerves. <laughs> and there's been somebody who didn't seem to like me all that well either. And I think it just hit me for the first time this past week that, you know, that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. And I think this is important because, see, sometimes what happens is, is we go to a group or we've been part of a group for a little bit of time and we bail because it's not just nirvana all the time. You know, just because it's not like perfect and we love each other and peace and harmony, I just can't wait to get there. And, and because if it's not that, we think, well, this, is, this isn't worth it. It's just not, you know, or there's some conflict that comes along and we think, oh, that should never be that way. And... See, that's exactly the way it should be because we need to learn how to love each other. We need the discipline of being in community so that we can become better lovers. Henry Nouwen said, community is that place where the person you least want to be there always is. I think that's right. I think that's right. So I kind of, I just made this list. I sat down for 10 minutes or so and, and I made a list of things that I think I've learned are 
better put am learning about practicing love as a result of living in the community of a small group. I think I've learned and am learning to, to be challenged and to challenge other people. I think I've learned to see potential in people who don't have the confidence to see it in themselves. I think I've learned and am learning to put other people ahead of me. I've learned to inconvenience myself for the sake of somebody else. I've learned to forgive. I've learned to receive somebody else's forgiveness. I've learned and am learning to be tolerant and to be intolerant in a loving, caring way. I've learned to be committed to someone, to be patient with people, I've learned to choose to like someone despite all the reasons they give me not to. I've learned to value someone enough to seek out relationship with them even though their kids are brats. I've learned and am learning to speak truth to someone even though everything inside me doesn't want to. I've learned to work through conflict rather than turning and running the other way. I've learned to be believed in and to let myself be carried by other people's belief and support in me. I've learned and, and I'm learning to be accepted even after I mess up. I've learned to submit to someone else. And to serve someone else. And to let someone else serve me. Which truthfully for most of us is the harder of the two, isn't it? It's easier to serve somebody than to let somebody else serve you. But you know, it's pride that keeps us from doing either of those things, right? I've learned and am learning those things. And a dozen more things that I'm sure I didn't think of or that I haven't thought to think of yet that I'm going to still hopefully learn. But I wonder if these were the kinds of things Peter had in mind when he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So where is it that we learn to love and to be loved like that? It's in community. And there's no place better than a small group. And so again, if you're not in a new life small group, let me encourage you, let me implore you to get in one. Let us help you. 
Let me help you. I'd love to do that. You can just come to Getting Connected. We do it on Wednesday nights, and it happens here in the building. It's a place that you can come and see what a small group's like, and we can you know, learn enough about you to kind of be able to direct you towards a group that might be a good fit. Let us help you. Get in one. In fact, if you've been doing the, the Love Dare, and I hope you have, this is our last week, the challenge for today, the Love Dare for today, day 22, is to get in community. If you've been holding out on getting connected in a small group, resolved by God's grace to do so soon. Let us help you. And I'd also say that if you're in a small group, but as you listen, you think, you know, but I don't, that's not what's going on in, in my small group. Then what I'd encourage you to do is do the things to fight to make it that way. I'm not just talking to leaders. I'm talking to all of us. Determine that you're going to do the things to make your group not just about getting together once a week for a meeting, but to be about community. To be about being a place where you learn to love each other. We put together some videos that we use in our small groups. There's one on each of the three habits that we talk about regularly around here. And we ask our group to show those as a part of their groups regularly. And, and habit number two, there's a video on that that I did that's all about creating community in your group. If you haven't watched that video or if you haven't done it recently, consider doing that sometime soon in your small group. But don't settle for less than community. Because we need to be part of a place where we're learning to love better. Community. I think Henry Nouwen really got this. Henry Nouwen, who I quoted earlier. If you, if you aren't familiar with Henry Nouwen, he was a writer, a speaker. And he, he moved in some pretty powerful circles. Places like Yale and Harvard and Notre Dame. But he spent the last decade of his life caring for and living with physically and mentally challenged residents in a small community called La Arche. And uh, John Ortberg wrote this about him. He says, there Henry made friends with a resident named Trevor who had many mental and emotional challenges. And one time when Trevor was sent to a hospital for evaluation, Henry called to make a visit. And when the authorities found out that the famous Henry Nowen was coming, they asked if he would meet with some of the doctors and the chaplains and the clergy, and he agreed. And when he arrived, there was a lovely luncheon that was laid out in the golden room, but Trevor wasn't there. Well, where is Trevor, Henry asked. Well, he cannot come to lunch, they told him. Patients and staff are not allowed to have lunch together. No patient has ever had lunch in the golden room. But the whole purpose of my visit was to have lunch with Trevor, Henry said. If Trevor's not allowed to attend the lunch, then I won't attend either. And so a way was found for Trevor to attend the lunch. And the golden room was filled with people who were quite excited that the great Henry Nowen was in their midst. Some angled to be close to him. They thought how wonderful it would be to tell their friends, as I was saying to Henry Nowen just the other day, some pretended to have read books that they had never read or no ideas that they didn't know. And others were quite upset that the rules separating patients and staff had been broken. 
But Trevor, oblivious to all of this, sat next to Henry, who was engaged in conversation with the person on his other side. And so consequently, Henry didn't notice that Trevor had risen to his feet. A toast, Trevor said. I will now offer a toast. And the room grew quiet. What in the world is this guy going to do? Everyone wondered. And then Trevor began to sing. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, if you're happy and you know it, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. Well, at first, people weren't sure how to respond. But Trevor was beaming. His face and his voice told everyone how glad and proud he was to be there with his friend Henry. And somehow Trevor, in his brokenness and his joy, gave a gift that no one else in the room could give. And people began to sing softly at first, but then with more enthusiasm until doctors and priests and PhDs were almost shouting, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. All under the direction of Trevor. And no one was preening anymore. No one worried about the rules. No one tried to separate the PhDs from the ADDs. And for a few moments, a room full of people moved toward the best version of themselves. Because a wounded healer named Henry Nowen lived amongst the challenged. And because a challenged man named Trevor was living out the best version of himself. You see, it's in community that we learn to be the best versions of ourselves. See, that's where we're freed to love and to be loved. Where nobody's trying to impress anybody anymore. And everybody stops thinking about themselves. And everybody is just caught up in the moment of being connected to each other. And that is where we learn to love. See, you don't learn that from reading your Bible. As important as reading your Bible is, that you don't learn to love from reading your Bible. You don't learn that from coming to church, as important as that is. You don't learn that from, from praying in isolation, as important as prayer is. You learn that with other people. And can I tell you, it's hard to learn. It takes practice. But we need to learn to become better lovers. Because we're going to be doing it forever. Well, pray with me, would you? Lord Jesus, my prayer for me and for each of us in this room. Is that we would become better lovers. God increase our faith. 
increase our hope and increase our love. Our love for you, Lord Jesus, and our love for each other. And help us do the things that we need to do now in this life so that we learn to love better. I pray it in your name and for your glory. Amen.